Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to Discover DEP, the official podcast of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Each week, we talk with DEP experts about how we protect and preserve New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. So that you'll never miss one of our podcasts, please subscribe to Discover DEP on iTunes or Google Play. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. Today we are very pleased to be joined by Peter Clark, who's a senior biologist for DEP's Bureau of Marine Fisheries. Since 1984, the Bureau of Marine Fisheries has been involved in an intensive program of artificial reef construction and biological monitoring. Artificial reefs and ocean waters along the Jersey coast provide a habitat for fish, shellfish, and crustaceans, fishing grounds for anglers, and underwater structures for scuba divers. But I'm not sure that many of our listeners know what an artificial reef is or all of the benefits it adds to our marine environment. And that's why Peter is here today, to tell us all about this interesting and really innovative program here in New Jersey. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bob. Peter, tell us, what's an artificial reef and why are we creating them? So off the coast of New Jersey, we have a pretty undescript bottom. In other words, it's flat sand. Uh, There's not a whole lot of relief in the majority of the coast of New Jersey. So we've created these habitat structure we add to the ocean floor. What this allows is for fish to occupy these structure areas in an otherwise flat bottom with nothing available to them. So why do they want places to habitate? Do they like to hide or do they go in there to breed? Is it what sort of reasons? Exactly. So for both of those reasons and additional reasons, they go in there to hide from predators. They go in there to feed. They go in there to reproduce. They go in there for a host of different reasons. And we're looking at about just over 150 species of marine life that that use these artificial reefs as home. 150 species? 150 species between all the epifauna, the flora, all the fish, the crustaceans, the invertebrates. Otherwise, if I understand it, would probably not be in those waters. They'd probably be further off the coast when the bottom got a little more either rocky or, or, or different in terms of not just flat sand. Yeah, so they would certainly not be in the areas that we are creating these reefs. They would be either up or down the coast or not at all. Now, when I'm thinking of an artificial reef, the first thing that pops into my mind is, you know, a fish tank I had when I was a kid where you'd put that ceramic castle in the bottom of the tank, you know, so the fish would have some place to go in and out. I suspect this is a little more involved than that. (laughs) Sometimes sometimes it is as simple as that, but usually it's a little bit more involved. So material that we use for artificial reefs include now only rock, repurposed concrete, and ships or barges. So we're looking at three material types. We don't put any kind of fiberglass, no wood, no plastics, nothing like that is used for an artificial reef. So it's all long-lasting material. The stuff will last for centuries most of the time. And I imagine before you put it out there, you have to make sure it's clean, particularly if you're sinking a boat or a ship, you want to make sure there's no oil or gasoline or any other contaminants on the on the material. Right, absolutely. So, for instance, when we prepare a ship for sinking, we typically remove all of the engines, we remove all of the fuel, hydraulic fluid, 
any kind of flittable material, plastics, fiberglass, electrical conduit, these things are spick and span. They're basically just stripped down shells of a vessel. So when we deploy these, these are steel only. We're not putting any kind of contaminants in the water. We test them all for PCBs. So we follow a very strict EPA guideline on how high the PCB levels in the paint can be. If the PCB levels are too high, then we remove all the paint or we don't sink the vessel. We'll scrap it instead. So it's basically down to the hard surface. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, if anybody has seen a boat come out of the water at the end of the season, you'll see the barnacles on the hull under the water line. Is that part of what this whole thing does is, is kind of the ecosystem, does it build out from kind of more simple forms of life to then the more complex, the fish and everything else? Absolutely. So as soon as we put this material on the bottom, be it rock, concrete, or vessel, organisms start to occupy that space. In fact, we've gone back two days after sinking a ship and caught black sea bass on it. It happens that quickly. Things start to grow on this material almost instantly as well. So you'll begin to get some algae growing on the material, and then it just cascades from there. Everything begins to build upon that, like you said, barnacles or oysters and all sorts of life begins to occupy this stuff. And that brings in smaller fish, which in turn brings in the larger fish, things that we want to fish for, we want to scuba dive and see. It sounds almost like the the analogy would be, you know, back in the 19th century when the Homestead Act was making land available to people who wanted to move out west and they'd get a plot of land and they'd build a house and start farming. And before you know it, people would come around. And before you knew it, you'd had a city growing up in that place. That's right. So one of the big questions with artificial reefs is, is it an attractant or is it a productive site? So in other words, are we just drawing fish in that already exist? And I think... I would like to say that we're closer to a final answer on that, but my feeling is that it's doing both. It's attracting fish first, and then those fish that are occupying that are spawning, and they're making more little fish, and those little fish going off to some other artificial reefs. So we've got quite an artificial reef infrastructure in New Jersey. We've got uh, 17 artificial reefs. Two of those are brand new, so they don't have any bottom. They don't have any kind of structure on them yet. So there's a lot of a lot of area for these animals to occupy. And are they concentrated in any one particular spot along the coast, or are they all along the coast? They they span all the way from Sandy Hook up through Delaware Bay, so all the way down to Cape May and then up into the bay now. And they range anywhere from a, a mile or so offshore. We have a deep water site that's about 20 or so miles off the beach. So we, we cover a, a diverse landscape of bottom. So 17 of them about... Is there an average size in terms of what it covers, in terms of how much of the seabed it covers? Yeah, so in total, we're looking at about 27 square miles of reef area. Now, a reef area doesn't mean that the entire reef is covered with material. We have what are called patch reefs within each reef site. Mm. So the reef sites cover 27 square miles. The, on average, we're probably around 1.1 square miles per reef site. So to stress the analogy I made a little before, it's kind of like you've got the reef as kind of the center of the city, and then 27 square miles might be out to the suburbs, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. That's all the life that's affected by the location of that Absolutely. reef, and that depends on it in, in a way. And what's neat about our reefs is a lot of these animals, your tatog and sea bass, they, summer flounder, all these animals are occupying reef sites. And, uh, and a lot of these animals depend on estuaries for spawning for different parts of their life cycle. And these reefs 
they afford those animals a haven, if you will, somewhere to live, somewhere, somewhere to occupy stage before they enter an estuary to spawn, let's say. So I mentioned earlier that these reef sites attract anglers. Are there any restrictions on who can fish at the reefs, uh, when they can fish, do they need a special permit? How does that work? Right, so uh, reefs are open to all recreational angling. Uh, right now we have two reef sites, actually four reef sites now with our additional two brand new ones that don't have any material on them. That are uh, Those are solely in state waters. So. Uh, on the two existing reef sites, there are full access zones, meaning that commercial fishermen can fish in these small areas on those two existing reef sites. On the two new ones, commercial fishermen are excluded, mm -hmm. and they are recreational only. There's no special permit needed to fish on these reef sites. You do need to follow the guidelines for whatever species you're targeting and follow our regulations for that. So the season and the bag limit and those sorts of things apply? Yep, size, season, and bag for whatever species you're targeting. I would imagine they attract quite a bit of attention from anglers. Absolutely, they're very popular areas. If you can fish in a desert or you can fish in a very productive reef site, most people are going to go to the reef site. Yeah, I would think. I would imagine that these reef sites also provide a lot of opportunity for research in terms of the uh, marine life off of our coast. Yeah, absolutely. So we started work in 2016 with Rutgers University in an NJDEP-funded study to conduct a trap survey on the Little Egg Inlet and the Seagirt artificial reefs. Between March and November, we set 22 individual fish traps. They're identified on the surface with red buoys. They say Rutgers University on them. So if you see them, please don't pull them up. Mm. Those are research buoys, and they're very important for this survey. So the well, you have to make sure, especially none of the anybody who went to any of those other Big Ten schools <laughs> is attempted to fool with those buoys. They're doing important research. That's absolutely right. So the, 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 the survey is focusing on several species of recreational and commercial importance. Those include black sea bass, tatog, lobster, but they also provide helpful data on the commercially important species, other important commercial species occurring on the reefs, as well as recreational species. So results from this project will be valuable for improving ecological understanding of the New Jersey's artificial reefs and useful for consideration and development of fishery management plans in New Jersey. That's great. It's, I've heard people say that we actually know more about outer space than we do what's in the water bodies that cover, what, three quarters of the Earth's surface. So this research is really important, isn't it? Absolutely. This is one of the first projects of its kind in New Jersey. And we're really excited to be teamed up with Rutgers University. And we're fortunate we've got two more years of funding, so the survey will be a minimum of three years. We're very excited to have Dr. Olaf Jensen and Dr. Doug Zemeckis involved with it. And this will help us not only understand kind of what's going on down there around the reefs, but I, I would imagine it will help in our management of the fisheries as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that kind of having that good data will help the folks who make decisions about management make better decisions. And or more was, informed decisions. And that was our goal, so to be able to collect data on these artificial reefs. One of the coolest parts about this project, from my perspective, is I was telling you about these new artificial reef sites. Well, one of them is right off of Manasquan Inlet. It's about 2.2 miles. And we were able to set some of this fixed gear, some of these pots, in flat, undescript bottom, just sand. And uh, 
we did that for an entire year and now we are going to start deploying some material on that so we're going to have a direct relationship a direct comparison between right. no no bottom no structure and and developed structure bottom. kind of a great before and after picture absolutely yeah that's great that's that's the kind of research that really stands on its own because you don't have to make a lot of assumptions about what it might have been happening there before the reef was there right. you've got the data to prove it now how far below the surface generally are these reefs? Do recreational and commercial boats or, or ships have to worry that they might plow into one or, or are they deep enough that that's not a concern? We are required to follow strict minimum clearance rules and they vary along the coast depending on where the reef sites have been located. We range anywhere from 30 feet of clearance all the way to 50 feet of clearance and again if we're close to a shipping lane that minimum clearance is greater it's usually in the 50 foot range. Some of the areas where there's only 30 foot of clearance on a natural bank, let's say, within a few miles of the reef, then our reef will have a 30 foot clearance. Mm -hmm. And this means that we're setting material down in 50, 60, 80 feet of water, and we've got sometimes 40 feet from the bottom to what we call our ceiling to put material. A lot of cases we can put some very large ships down. So you're not really messing with the charts that are that are out there. The charts that the ships rely on are going to be accurate in terms of you're not going above what the clearance is on those charts. Yeah, right. And that's a very important point to make. We follow these guidelines very strictly, and we don't want to impede any kind of navigable waters off no. the coast. And you certainly don't want to end up with a ship unintentionally adding to the reef. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I understand uh, recently there has been a rather distinguished ship that is now playing a role as an artificial reef in Jersey's waters. Tell us a little bit about that. A few years ago, we were approached with a project. It's a joint project with the state of Delaware to work on the uh, Zunai Tamaroa. It's a tugboat. First, it was a Navy tugboat called the Zunai. Then the U.S. Coast Guard took over the vessel and it became the Tamaroa. So this vessel was served on by hundreds of servicemen, and we are sinking it in the Del Jersey Land Reef, which is 33 miles southeast of Cape May. Again, it's a permit held by the state of Delaware, and we were part of that project, which is very exciting. And this tugboat, I understand, saw some pretty serious action during the course of its life. It did. It first, I believe, saw action in World War II. It was part of the battle at Iwo Jima saw action in the Korean War, and its last most notable deployment was during the famous Perfect Storm, which was, I believe, in 1996, and it rescued mm -hmm. uh, seven air crewmen off, wow. off of... Uh, that went down in that storm. That's right. And they were trying to rescue folks who were on a fishing boat. I believe so. Correct. As I recall, yeah. they rescued the brave uh, members of the Coast Guard who were assisting in that, in that rescue attempt. It's kind of interesting to think that this, this ship that survived military battles and survived some of the worst storms we've seen in the Northeast over the past 70 or 80 years is now being sent to the bottom deliberately mm. to serve a very useful purpose. So after it has completed its service on the water, it is now going to continue to serve under the water. Yeah, it's really... It's a really interesting way to, to end its life. Like you said, it's better than going to scrap, which happens yeah. often. We could set it up as a museum. It financially takes a, an awful lot of money to do so. 
this way exactly. It'll serve a, a purpose underwater. It'll provide home to 150 species of animals off the coast of New Jersey and Delaware. And divers will still be able to go and visit it. So we're, we're very excited to have it part of the artificial reef network. So what are we looking down the road for the artificial reef network? Are we pretty well built out or are there is there more planned? <laughs> There's a lot more planned. So this year alone for 2017, we're looking at at least five deployments of vessels. That's not including all the rock, the repurposed concrete. So the most recent deployments that we have occurring are going to be on the Manasquan Inlet Reef. That's the one that has no material on it. Our quote-unquote ribbon-cutting vessel is an 80-foot dragger out of Belford, New Jersey, called the Mount Sinai. That will be sunk, we're hoping, sometime in early May. We have a fireboat. It's coming from Norfolk, Virginia. We're going to use that as a memorial reef for first responders 9-11 and that'll also go on the Manasquan Inlet Reef so we're very excited to have some involvement from current first responders and, and folks off of uh, off of Point Pleasant, New Jersey at the Manasquan Inlet Reef. And that'll be a lasting memorial to the first responders who served and gave their lives on 9-11. Correct. And that's not the first time one of these reefs has had a memorial purpose is it? Not at all. In fact, oftentimes these reefs are, these patch reefs are used as memorials for lost family members, friends, uh, various family. They certainly serve more purpose than just houses for fish. I remember President Kennedy once said that the reason we as human beings are so attracted to the sea is that the salinity of our blood is equivalent to the salinity of ocean water. And I think certainly here in New Jersey, where the Jersey Shore is uh, such an essential part of the fabric of this state and the history and the culture and the future of this state, to know that this sort of work is going on offshore also speaks, I think, and the fact that people choose to memorialize loved ones in this way speaks to the connection that this state has with our ocean and marine environment. I agree. It's pretty special. It is. Yeah. And you, in your role as a biologist for the Bureau of Marine Fisheries, it must be one of those jobs where every day you're kind of like, I can't believe I get to do this. Somebody's paying me for it. This is, a, this is a great part of my job. This isn't the only thing that I do, but certainly one of the most enjoyable parts of it. Well, that's great. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share this information about the artificial reefs off the coast of New Jersey the contribution they make to the marine life off of our coast, the way they help families and others remember loved ones, and the role they're going to play in the future health of our marine environment. This is uh, an interesting topic that one is, it's a terrible pun, I'll say, you know, it's maybe not as widely known because it happens beneath the surface of uh, what people can see. But it's really important work, and it's innovative in a lot of ways, and in Jersey I think has been a national and an international leader, really, in creating these sorts of environments to provide the habitat for fish and other marine life. So the work you're doing is uh, not only very interesting, it's very consequential and is going to be around a long time. Well, thanks, Bob. Peter, is there a place on the web where people can go to find out more information about artificial reefs off the Jersey coast? Yes, Bob. If you go to the New Jersey Division of Fish and Wildlife website and follow to the Bureau of Marine Fisheries, there are links to the Artificial Reef Program in which you can find charts that have all of our recent deployments up and down the coast. And you can read about the various vessels and material that we've deployed over the years.
That's great. And we have that link included in the description of the podcast. You can click right on that and get to where you need to be. Peter, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.